We're recording a lot lately, Brace. This is, I think we're doing four in a week, uh, <laughs> plus a little extra. People don't know that, but oh my God, I think we recorded almost every night this week. Let me yeah. give you a little, let me give you a little uh, rundown of the old Belden schedule here. I wake up in the morning uh, after a very short night of sleep. And then, then you go I back s- to sleep. Then I go back to sleep. I try to go back. Well, what I do is I, I get on the computer and I read for a little bit. Uh, well, not always, but in the case of this week. And then I go back to sleep. And then I wake up again and I, and I sit here. And my desk is in my room. And so even though, as, as, as the two of you can see, my door is open right here. I actually don't walk through that that much. And I, and I sit in here and, uh, and, you know, I start to go a little crazy. Take it a little wild. Yeah. This is, uh, it's a lot of recording. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. But you know what? Well, we do it for you, mm-hmm. the listener, like, not you, Brace. No, it's definitely not for me. But like, <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's fine to do because like, I, I just want to announce like, this is the last episode of True or Not. I don't get what we're doing. My armpit itches too. Oh, now we have to cut that out because that sounds gross. No. Well, how is that gross? I don't know what's going on with you. It is the arms crotch, but I don't know what's going on with me either. It itches. Stop showing it to me. Well, can you see any? I'm looking at it too. I can't see no, it. No, your I'm hand sitting. is in. Okay. Hello. Welcome. Hey. This is hey. True and On. Uh, my name is Brace. <laughs> Why are you rubbing your nipples right now? I'm not. No. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Let me show you exactly where my hands are. Let me show you. In fact, I'm going to take out my shirt and show you my nipples. No, are you don't. My <laughs> nipples are right here. My hands, as you can see, as you can see, we're right here. Oh my in God, put your shirt center, down. Uh, well, no, I just want to, no, I'm sorry. Got to clear the air here. Liz was either trying to deceive you or she herself has poor vision. Oh my God. We are also joined by producer Young Chomsky. This is True Anon. Hello. He's rubbing his nip- nipples too. No, he's not. You're lying. You can't see that. You, oh my he's, God. You just neck up. Okay, now I can see it. <sighs> Kind of look like you had titties there. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, Brace, what's going on today? We are, we're doing a little interview today. Uh, as many of you know, uh, we live in the Bay Area, and in the Bay Area is a big-ass prison full of insanely sick people who are basically locked up 24 hours a day called San Quentin. Yeah, it's pretty famous. Um, what's not famous is the coronavirus epidemic sweeping through the prison system and the uh, rates at uh, San Quentin and the amount of infections are particularly egregious. It's a it's a pretty um, pretty horrific story, which is not being covered at all by the lamestream media. Um, yeah. So for the, for the record, there's like less than 200 deaths uh, from coronavirus in San Francisco, a city of about a million people, and there are 26 just in San Quentin, which is a prison of I think around 3,000 people. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's extraordinary. Well, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have us with us here tonight, uh, Danica Rodermel. Rodermel? I said that wrong, even though I wrote it down phonetically. Uh, the state policy director for the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, here to talk to us about uh, the excellent humane conditions in one of America's finest, really model prisons, San Quentin. Danica, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing great, especially with that introduction. <laughs> we always like to start it off with a bang. Mispronouncing my name, misstating the facts. We're off to a good start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, I, yeah, I, we're pros. Yeah, it's, I, I went to several years of podcasting school to get this good. <laughs> no, but um, if listeners couldn't tell, Brace was being uh, very, very sarcastic, facetious. Um, the situation at San Quentin in California is quite dire. 
Um, and it's only been exacerbated by the COVID outbreak. I think that's like something to note and we're going to get into that. I think from what I'm seeing and correct me if I'm wrong, that about, so there's about 3,200 incarcerated individuals at San Quentin and 200, 2,237 have been infected with over a hundred hospitalized and 26, uh, died. That's pretty, I mean, those statistics are pretty high. What's the situation like at San Quentin right now? Yeah, I think the number that we've been saying is like over two thirds of the population have become infected, but it's also important to remember that many people refuse to be tested, right? So the numbers are actually probably higher than that. And it's just not reflected because people haven't been tested. Mm. Um, Right now, I think the current number of cases is down into the double digits again, and maybe even the teens today. Um, So mostly it was like beginning of June, right? It ramped up and then it got really, really wild in July. And then now we're on a downward trend. So CDCR's answer to you, the California Department of Corrections, about how things are currently is fine. Nothing to see here. All good. It's over. They're resolved. Everybody's okay. (laughs) When the reality is, uh, that is certainly not clear. It is still incredibly overcrowded in there. Um, we don't know what actually happens after people have had it once. There's no clarity that you can't get it again. And beyond all of that, the f- fact of the matter is that people have been living without access to their loved ones and visiting or programs or you know, basically on lockdown for six solid months with really no end in sight. So um, even if the numbers look like they're better, the reality is that the lived experience for people inside is still a nightmare, and it's been a nightmare for many, many months. San Quentin is like one of the oldest prisons, uh, or I think it's the oldest prison in, in California, right? But it's, a, yeah. I mean, it's one of the oldest prisons in the United States. I mean, it's, com- I mean, I think it's probably to people not in California, it's pretty famous. Everyone knows that name, San Quentin. But it's like uh, incredibly dilapidated. Uh, I, I don't even know. I mean, it's, it's certainly not modern by any by any like stretch of the imagination. Um, so I can only imagine um, with the situation now that inmates are getting you know sick or have been sick, like how that's exacerbating the situation. Um, yeah, the only part of San Quentin that's modern at all actually is the hospital. They built a new hospital there about ten years ago, I think. Um, But the rest of it is super old and it is super dilapidated. And there's people living in nine foot by four foot cells, two people, right? Um, And locked down, you know, almost all of the time for the last six months. Um, But the complicated thing about San Quentin, too, is that, yes, it's like horrible and old and disgusting and terrible. And at the same time, it is like, this model prison in terms of availability of programs and people's Mm. access to community on the outside. And so many people in the California prison system, despite the environmental conditions, still often want to be at San Quentin because they have a lot more opportunities to live closer to like normal outside living um, than the other prisons, but it's still prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had some friends go play baseball there, and there's a very famous right. footage of the the punk band Crime playing there in 1977. Um, yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. great. You should look that up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. The, the listeners out there. Um, so what is like you said lockdown here? Because like I, I think a lot of people when they hear that word, are like, well, I've been on lockdown too. You know, I've been in my house, but for like for prisoners, there's a pretty different connotation there, right? Because lockdown is. That's already a thing in prisons, right? Like solitary confinement, uh, not being able to leave your cell, stuff like that. Um, And so what does that actually look like for people in there right now? Yeah, I think, I mean, right now, because of the fact that the numbers have gone down, they're able to do a little bit more movement. But in the moments of the worst parts of the outbreak in the early days, it was like 23 hours a day confined to your cell you you know might get out for a shower um or to depending on how they were doing feeding so sometimes people would have to come out of their cells to get their food but then they were doing in-cell feeding so literally bringing the food right to people's cell doors at certain mm-hmm. points um but no yard time right no getting out and going outside 
for months. So like zero. Zero. For months. For months. And the way in San Quentin, um, there are increasing numbers of prisons that now have, you know, folks have tablets and, you know, some access to like email or streaming services. None of that at San Quentin, right? So just like lockdown in cells, people have TVs and radios, but mm-hmm. no access to phones because the only phones that exist, theoretically, besides the phones that people might have everywhere, <laughs> but are the, the pay phones on the walls. Um, yeah. And so you have to get out of your cell and go and like sign up. And oftentimes, you know, it's like six pay phones for like 800 people, right? Yeah, and yeah. so- it's a whole thing to even get to and use the phone. So there was like long stretches of period of time where people are super freaked out, right? Have no access mm-hmm. to the loved ones on the outside and loved ones on the outside had no information about their people on the inside. Well, conversely too, the people on the inside have no idea if the people on the outside are getting sick or what's right. going on with them. They've lost their jobs, anything like yeah. that. I think another thing too, I want to clear up is when we say the prisons are overcrowded, like what exactly do we mean by that? Because I think there's kind of a sense like, oh, sure. the I don't know. I think people kind of blow by that term and don't really have a sense of what it means, but that's really contributing to, um, you know, I, I mean, I think I, it's like 16 out of 17 of all the largest coronavirus outbreaks are happening in prisons. And mm-hmm. it's directly related to the fact that they're all pretty much overcrowded. Yeah. Yeah. You have people just like living on top of each I mean, like literally in San mm-hmm. Quentin living on top of each other. Like I said, they're all double celled, two people to a nine foot by four foot cell, like on bunks. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and also San Quentin has bars. So everybody's breathing and it's just going straight right. out through, you know, into the rest of the space. There's no yeah. solid doors to try to stop every, anything. And, you know, like the early days of the pandemic, we're like, wash your hands and use hand sanitizer. And then it like turned out, of course, it seems like it's much more about our breathing and sharing space, which is like mm-hmm. all that is, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, so during the tough on crime era of the lat, you know, starting in the 90s, we really just increased people's sentences in prison and they got longer and harsher. And so we just kept filling them up. And like, literally when we say overcrowding, we mean like, you know, San Quentin is built to hold reasonably X number of people, but it's holding 3,200. I can't remember what the number is for San Quentin, but it was, you know, they're about at a hundred percent capacity now. Um, but the California prison system I mean, at the point where they were found to be, the entire California prison system was found to be so overcrowded that the Supreme Court of the United States found that it violated the U.S. Constitution. And like, let me tell you, getting any finding that a prison is violating the, it's the Eighth Amendment, which is the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, that is a tough ass legal standard that is incredibly hard to reach ever. And having the Supreme Court say that is a big deal. And I can't remember exactly what the percentage was then, but I think we were at about, you know, like nearing 200% capacity. And the order in that case was like, just to bring it down to like 140% or maybe it was 137%, right? Which is still over 25% over capacity. And now CDCR is doing all this stuff saying that they've let all these people out and they're like now under 100,000 people. Like not really true, right? They have let some Uh people out a little bit quicker. What they've really done is they stopped bringing people in from the county jails, which actually is like what accounts for most of that reduction in the population. And that won't stop forever. Yeah, I want to... I want to kind of pause on this because there was like um, a, you know, big news cycle, everyone like cheering on Gavin Newsom and everyone for taking action on reducing uh, uh, the prison populations and, and, and letting, you know, saying like, oh, we're letting all these people out. We're letting all these non-offenders out, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. like you're saying, that's not actually really what, what happened. And it's certainly, you know, the percentage of people they let out is nowhere near um, what it needed to be. No. And like, let me blow your mind here. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. This whole distinction. Can I cuss on this podcast? Yeah, this go for it. Absolutely, yes. 
this whole distinction between violent and nonviolent offenders is mm, complete uh. bullshit. It is like not a real, it's like not a real thing. And everybody just needs to like, psh, let it go. It says nothing about whether or not somebody is like safe to be released right now. Absolutely nothing about somebody's current level of risk, right? Mm -hmm. It literally just comes down to what were they convicted of? And most cases, most criminal cases are resolved by plea, right? They never go to a trial over 90%. So there was never any fact finding in that case. We don't actually know what that person's actual conduct was. And then they're labeled as a violent or nonviolent offender. And then we act like that, that label has meaning when it really doesn't. Beyond that, also, CDCR's own metrics, their own risk assessment tool, says that 50% of the prison population currently is assessed at low risk of recidivism. Mm -hmm. And they still are acting like they can't possibly let a, people out because they're, un, they're unsafe to release because they're violent offenders. So yeah. all of that is like smoke and mirrors bullshit. Um, he, we have sped up process, processes and we're letting people out, but mostly only people who are of this like nonviolent offender category when who we, the other like, and I'm not here for like pitting any of the populations against each other. And I'm not going to say that anybody's more deserving of release than anybody else, but another population of people that we should absolutely be looking at right now and thinking about releasing. And we are not because they're all violent offenders are people that have life sentences in prison. All of our lifers, which is a huge population of the mm -hmm. especially elderly prison population in California, are folks who've been in prison for like two decades, who've done a lot of personal work also, and are like very ready to go home and have like one of the lowest rates of recidivism, right? Well, people th who, th yeah. That's like a thing in Europe. I know that like in pretty much every Western European country is that once you get pretty old, they're like, all right, you can get out of prison now. Like, what the fuck are you going to do? Yeah, uh, people age out of crime. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like you're not going to go around on a, you know, a, a joyriding anymore or whatever. You're 90 fucking five years old. Um, and so that there's like a hard line in the prison system then against basically letting any of these people out. I mean, obviously, they're serving life sentences. Um, and, and that kind of extends to anything, anyone who's a violent offender, which could be, I mean, for the record, somebody who committed any kind of violent crime like 50 years ago or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, to me also like the elderly people in there, like, you know, COVID is, you know, if it is for anybody, it is for them a death sentence too. And to put them in a place that like, where they, where they not only uh, are at risk of getting it, but like a way higher risk than basically anywhere else in the country. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, the reality is like, look, we can, so like what I'm saying is we have a prison system that is overcrowded. The outbreaks have gotten so bad there because of that. We, and also like, there's no, in, there's no ability to be nimble, right? When you have, mm -hmm. when you're like stuffed to the max, you can't shift people around. You can't be responsive when stuff starts to happen. And so then shit gets real bad. And, um, we can obviously safely release a lot more people than we are. And we aren't for a whole bunch of other reasons, which we can get into and which yeah, is love related. <laughs> and I, like, and one thing I will name though, which is like a very real, this is a very real thing. And I think it's something that you care about and that your listeners care about, which is people in prison. Many of them have harmed people, right? Yeah. There are, there are victims and survivors here that do need to be considered and cared for. And, the reality is oftentimes, well, first of all, our criminal legal system does nothing to help victims or survivors right. beyond keeping people who might harm them away from them. It does nothing for them. And so, but then we end up in these situations where they're used as the reason not Absolutely. to change things. And it's, they're actually the reason we should change things. Yeah, basically, the way the I mean, the criminal justice system uses victims as um, I mean, you know, that they are held up as reasons for really, really harsh sentencing. And there's a it's an interesting it's a it's a development that has happened, by the way, over the past couple of decades, like that didn't used to be the case. And um, it's it's increasingly 
victims are I mean in my opinion victims are used like mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think this is any kind of real justice for them mm-hmm. but they are used as uh tools for um sadistic sentencing really yeah um at at the hands of the state yep I don't know that might be too harsh for some people to hear but uh it's it, actually it's like- something that I've mentioned that essay before but uh China Mievel in his essay on the development of what he calls social sadism points to that as a, a new development within the criminal justice system, particularly in the United States, um, that, that, that is, you know, it, it's basically a perversion of what you think its intention is, right? Because it sounds right. But in, in reality, it's really not how the state is using, I mean, the state is using victims for these purposes at that point. And there's a whole bunch of other people. I mean, the whole, you know, the terminology prison industrial complex is a real thing, mm-hmm. right? And so when we start talking about this and why that has happened, then you start getting into larger conversations about power and who's actually invested in this and who's really winning from the ultimate, right. like, structure that currently exists. Well, I mean, I, from what I understand is the prison, the, uh, the prison guards union or, like, rather the union that like, re- represents people that work at prisons or whatever, correctional officers... Uh, is one of the biggest uh, and most powerful ones in the state, or at least their lobby is. The CCPOA is, I, they used to be for sure the most, like the most powerful. I think they've yeah. like lost a little bit of that power. Real estate, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually my buddy, Josh Page wrote a whole book about the CCPOA, CCPOA that's called the toughest beat. Um which I admittedly have not read enough of still, but um, certainly, I mean, yeah, right. When you start talking about labor, right? Like labor is a part of why it's hard to create lots of different kinds of change and people need jobs. And I'm also like sensitive to that. And so it starts to get really complicated when you start talking about who's invested in, in this, in these systems. Yeah, exactly. Because if you start like, you know, closing prisons down or if you start like, uh, you know, transferring populations and sort of consolidating them. I mean, yeah, people lose jobs, but like, it's also, uh, I mean, it's a huge sort of industry in California as well. I mean, we have a lot of prisons. Um, I mean, famous ones too. Alcatraz, notwithstanding. I've been there before. Very cool prison. No longer a prison. I just like islands. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's such a big presence here. For those for those people who haven't been to the Bay Area, like you can see San Quentin from like it's on the bay. It's directly on the bay. Yeah. Which, like, to be fair, like I would much rather be on the bay than like in outside of Fresno or Bakersfield or somewhere where the other prisons are, uh, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> um, but like, it is like this giant collection of old, dilapidated, like brick buildings. I mean, it looks like a it looks like an old style prison because it is one. Um, and, and, and I kind of want to get back to the coronavirus real quick, because like, how did this start? Like, why is the outbreak at San Quentin? Like, why was there one? Because I know that like, you know, it, it didn't start right at the beginning of the outbreak. It started kind of shortly after. And like, what precipitated that? Yeah. So it didn't start until June and we were all kind of amazed because we were all really ready for shit to hit the fan in there from the beginning. And then I was like, wow, are they going to do a good job? And then it was like, nope. Um, because there was a big outbreak at CIM where there's a lot of elderly, uh, which is the California institution for men, um, mm. where there's a lot of elderly and medically vulnerable people. And understandably they were trying to get those people out of there. So there's other big litigation against the California prison system, right? One of these uh-huh. cases is called the Plata case and the Plata case was trying to, has been trying to get people out since the beginning of the pandemic because they're like, that's the case that has talked about overcrowding forever. And they're like, it's going to be a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the attorneys in that case were trying to get court orders to get people out. And instead CDCR and their infinite wisdom um, just started, you know, shifting people around. And so they shifted, they transferred people from CIM to San Quentin. They, the requirement was that these people all had to have been tested and tested negative before transfer, right? Mm-hmm. They transferred I, that, them all. I'm sure that requirement was met, right? It was definitely met, just that they had been tra- they had been tested like three weeks to a month before. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, really, they're just 
they're like, yes, There's we no actually way. did yeah. that. And it's just like, okay. Um, and many people got sick during those three weeks when you transfer them. And then, you know, because I, there's still a lot of unanswered questions about exactly about how the outbreak really like got out from that population into the rest of the population of San Quentin. Like, I don't know if it was because of correctional staff getting it and then spreading it through, who knows, right. but regardless, it spread really, really quickly. I mean, and the architecture of San Quentin certainly does not help. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was a nightmare, a living, a living hell nightmare where, you know, literally got to the point at, at one point they were understaffed. They were barely feeding people. They couldn't, yeah. they like literally didn't have the staff to like feed people. Well, you said before too, some prisoners didn't want to get tested. Um, mm-hmm. And could you kind of elaborate why that was? Yeah. So essentially in the early days of the outbreak at San Quentin, the only, if you tested positive, what they were going to do is take you and throw you in the hole, which is literally huh. solitary confinement. That's like, um, a, yeah, a, a terrible punishment. Yeah. Yeah. And th- then that's the general, I mean, that happens every flu season, right? People get sick with the flu in prison every flu season. They try to hide their symptoms because the reward for being sick is that you get thrown in solitary confinement. Um, so essentially they disincentivized people from testing, right? Like, why would you get tested if all you're going to be, all that's going to happen for you is you're going to get thrown in the hole, which is like much worse than being in your own cell. You don't have your property. You know, it's like horrifying. And then after so many people got sick that they ran out of space in the hole, it was kind of like, well, so now what? So then they just started like, you know, locking positive people up with negative people and then they started, and then they were talking about transferring people. If you tested negative, they were going to transfer people if they tested negative. So then they've disincentivized people again from testing right. because they don't want to be transferred to another new prison. I mean, that's hella stressful and also yeah. super unsafe for a lot of people. I mean, like, well, it's also like you're... what if your family or something lives near here too? I mean, there's right. a variety of reasons you might not want that to happen. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, cause like, I, I, I think people, uh, you know, like everybody knows, I think what solitary confinement is. I mean, it's in the fucking name, but like, it really is like about as, I mean, it is torture, you know, like you have no contact with anybody else. You're by yourself. I don't know, like if they, cause I know that's like an actual form of administrative punishment they use as well. But like, I don't know if the, if, if, if when they quarantine somebody, they do the same thing where they take away like basically everything from them and, and just, you know, throw them in there. But, but I, I mean, just speaking for myself, there's no way in hell I would get tested um, yeah. if, if that was at all, you know, a possibility. So you're involved in a lawsuit now, correct? <laughs> I am. <laughs> Not you yourself. Pers- well, you you personally, but also uh, on behalf of a lot of people many, and alongside people, a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, do you want to walk our listeners through the suit? Yeah. So where to begin this story? Um, there was a special motion that people mm-hmm. can file to challenge their incarceration. It's called a habeas petition. Mm-hmm. Um, habeas corpus. It literally means something like, <laughs> I'm, I never get this right, but it's like release the body or something. It's mm-hmm. like literally about people's hold, like illegal holding of somebody's body yes. and a demand that you let that body go. The United States has uh, famously very strong habeas corpus laws <laughs> as of recently. But we also like- I'm being sarcastic, you know, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. We well, I, the, in theory, it's great. You know what I mean? Actually. And like the whole right. principle is like, look, if you're being held in ways that are illegal, then your incarceration should, is like void and you should get to go home. And mm. that's important because if we don't have those sorts of control on the state and on how we punish people, then like, really, there's no reason not to be putting people in horrible situations all the time. Um, but really, so people who are in prison file habeas petitions frequently to challenge all different kinds of stuff. You can challenge 
you can challenge your conviction. You can say like, there's something that happened wrong in my case and therefore Mm -hmm. let me go. You can also challenge like something about your prison conditions. It could be a, you know, something relatively minor and you're asking them to fix that. Um, or in the time of COVID, you can say, um, the conditions here are really bad with this outbreak. Therefore I'm being held unconstitutionally in violation of the eighth amendment, uh, which is the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. And therefore you have to let me go. And so when, as things, you know, got increasingly bad at San Quentin, people were filing these on their own behalf, um, Mm. already. And then the San Francisco public defender's office and other folks around the Bay started, um, filing attorneys were filing them on behalf of people in the prison. People in the prison were getting petitions that had been prepared by, um, all different kinds of advocates around the Bay and filing them on their own behalf. And then, um, the judge in Marin County decided to allow them to move forward when mm. most of the time, either they just kind of sit there or they get denied. Most, most yeah. habeas petitions are kind of just like denied outright. So it was sort of a big thing just in the very beginning for the uh, judge in Marin County to he, he issued an order to show cause is what it is, which essentially means like to the government, tell me why I shouldn't just grant this. Like this looks legit. So you mm-hmm. need to tell me why I shouldn't just give these people what they're asking for. And then so that's he's like when, asking the, the government to make their case. Yeah. Okay. So that happened already. They filed, they filed and they were like, you know, we're wonderful. We're doing everything we can. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Go away. And then we were like, absolutely not. And we filed something <laughs> in response to that. And then uh-huh. this is how litigation goes. It's very, very fun. And then somebody files something else. And then now the judge has uh, ordered an evidentiary hearing, actually. So that will be happening the end of this month, which is going to be like a mini trial, basically, mm-hmm. of the yeah. outbreak at San Quentin, wherein we will try to prove that they really have violated the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. And we are requesting that we're saying that the only way to cure that problem, the only appropriate relief is to let people go. Um, because San Quentin can never be safe until the population has been reduced by like 50%, which is what public health officials and experts who have gone there and looked at it have been saying for a long time. So like what kind of, what kind of evidence are you guys going to do? Like testimony from prisoners? Um, I know you've written a couple articles about it too, but like, I, I I have no idea how these things, like how these kind of things go. Yeah. I, so, I mean, the prison system itself has put out plenty of evidence uh, about how, what they've been doing. And I think they think that they're doing a great job. And I think that there's a lot of ways to challenge that opinion. Um, We have over, there's like over 200 people, over 200 incarcerated people that are petitioners in this case now. So we have plenty of uh, folks to provide their experiences. Um, And then I think we'll bring on various public health experts um, and potentially try to bring some people who, you know, work in the prison system. Um, Essentially we have to prove that they have, they have been deliberately indifferent, right. To the Mm -hmm. well-being of the people who are incarcerated. And so whatever we need to bring to convince the judge that that's the case is what we'll try to gather, but it's like a very, very short timeline Totally. Uh, yeah. With an opposing party who's like very unwilling to be helpful. Right. And, and the attorneys that represent CDCR in this case are the attorney general's office. They're the, right. they're the attorney to the state. And I will tell you, <laughs> I just can't imagine going to all of the work that law school is. Okay. Uh-huh. The hell you have to go through. And then you choose to defend prisons of all things and just yes. be, super unreasonable and super unpleasant. And I just <laughs> wonder what the rest of their life is like. I just can't <laughs> imagine that they don't have like major health problems from the fact that they're like rotting on the inside from yes. all of the darkness and terribleness that they're like supporting and putting into the world. Well, in the case well, of the San Francisco state's attorney's office, I guess that would mean because you want to run for vice president, right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, um, San Francisco, that's the district attorney's office, different office, and Chase is my friend, so be careful. No, that's not who I was talking about. I know, you're talking about Kamala.
Yeah, so you actually, I think we should probably get to this at this point. You actually have a personal stake in this because your husband is in San Quentin. This is true. I don't know why I'm asking that like a question. <laughs> this is a true statement. My husband is in San Quentin. Well, tell us about that. Um, okay. You're trying uh, to get him released, right? I mean, that makes it pretty important to you, I assume. Yes, it is really important. He should have been out a long time ago. He's in for, mm-hmm. um, he's been in prison for over 20 years under the felony murder rule, which means if you're involved in an inherently dangerous felony and somebody else, and somebody is killed during the course of that, even if you didn't kill that person, you can be c- convicted of murder. So he was 19 and he participated in a robbery. Um, he didn't have a real gun. One of his co-defendants had a real gun and shot and killed a sheriff's deputy that arrived on the scene. Um, mm. There was absolutely no premeditation there. They didn't go there thinking anything like that would happen. Um, it was tragic that officer had a young son and it was a very big deal of a case. I mean, people were really, you know, understandably freaked out and sad and upset. And they pursued the death penalty against all three of the young men that were involved in the crime. And the shooter in the case got life without the possibility of parole. And my Mm. husband and the other co-defendant got 25 years to life. Um, of which he's now served almost 21. So this would make your husband then one of the violent offenders that they re- refused to release. Yeah. Gotcha. But, but if he had been sentenced under, you know, if he had been sentenced according to his actual conduct, which would have been yeah, armed robbery, which is not nothing for sure. Yeah. Um, he would have, you know, done about 10 years. Um, yeah. So he's already served over about like twice the max of, I remember hearing about that law. It's the felony murder rule, yeah. you called it. Um, I remember hearing about that when I was younger and just being like so confused because it doesn't seem like, you know, I'm no legal expert here. Well, yeah. You know what? I am a legal expert here. Uh, you, but it you does say seem, you are. That's fine. <laughs> just in different kinds of law. Um, it, 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 uh, it, it doesn't <laughs> seem to make sense to me that like you could get sentenced to prison for a crime that somebody else did. Um, including up to, I, I didn't even know you could get the death penalty for that. I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible. Um, yeah. And we, we made some changes in that law in a couple of years ago through some legislation, um, which we're trying to get my husband out under right now um, mm-hmm. because he really should qualify and have been resentenced already. Um, but the complicated nature of the legis- legislature is that there's constantly amendments to bills, right? That, yep. And so there was one that was taken in the very end of the bill that makes it a higher bar if the victim was law enforcement. So it's the only oh. reason that he's not out already mm-hmm. under this new law, too, is that the victim, yeah. That I didn't know they did that because I, I, I remember all those like sort of laws that were created in the past few years in, in different, I think mostly southern states about like making, you know, any sort of crime against a police officer a hate crime or, in, you know, there's, I know there's... Uh, I mean, if you do if you do a crime against the cop, your sentence is going to be worse no matter what. But yeah. like uh, that, I, I didn't know that was always legally codified like that, which is which is pretty outstanding. Uh, outstanding. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's you, just like to the point about like this this law in general, right? Like it, it upsets the entire idea that people should be punished according to what they've actually done, right? right. Not according to the actions of somebody else, and the general idea about increased punishment for people who caused harm against law enforcement is like, mm-hmm. because we don't, we want to try to stop people from doing that. Right. We want yeah. to keep people from hurting law enforcement, which makes a certain amount of sense. But in a case like this, where he had no idea that a law enforcement officer was going to come and be harmed and had no opportunity to stop it. It's just, yeah. we're in a legal swirly mess of things <laughs> that don't make a lot of sense. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. And you, you, I know, I know I, I read an article by you, you know, talking, I think you co-wrote with your husband talking about um, uh, basically his experience in COVID started and in, in, in the possibility of early release. Uh, how has he been doing in there? He's a survivor for sure. And I always am like amazed by how kind and, <laughs> and positive he can be amidst so many 
hard things. Um, and now the most recent one, this outbreak. I mean, I feel like he honestly was like better mentally at least than me throughout most of this entire outbreak. Cause he's just used to being in situations that are, he has to figure out how to survive. And I, meanwhile, was just like a total, total wreck. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he's, you know, he's just doing what he can to try to help people around him. That's one of the ways that he, he copes and survives is he's trying to, he's super smart. So he's helping people understand this whole habeas case and mm-hmm. advocating for a lot of the older guys that are in there that, you know, are really at risk and um, doing his best to stay positive and continue to try to come home. But it's still terrible. I mean, we haven't seen each other in, it'll be six months in a couple of days. Oh, wow. And, 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 and like you were saying about the phones, I'm sure you can't talk on the phone much either. We've been able to talk a little bit more recently, but there was, yeah, for a lot of the outbreak. I mean, even the wor- the worst parts of the San Quentin outbreak, we couldn't talk like at all. And yeah. throughout the pandemic, it's been tough. And I usually would go visit him every weekend, you know? So. Yeah, of course. I, yeah. I mean, I, None I, of that. I, I'll tell you what, if someone, yeah, if, 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 you know, I was married to somebody who was locked in prison during an outbreak and I couldn't speak to them over the phone, I'd probably go fucking berserk. So yeah. I mean, also just like I'm going berserk even now that I can talk to him. Right. And I, there's sometimes yeah. where I'm just like, why am I having such a, like, why am I being such a bitch? And I'm like, Oh, cause everything fucking sucks. Like, <laughs> yes. cause because I've been through hell and I'm working my ass off and it yeah. still feels like there's people just still dying all the time. And totally. we're not getting, it just feels like we're not getting anywhere so much of the time. Well, <laughs> well I, that's, I don't want to be too dark and sad. No, but. it's no, we, we go there all the time on this show. Um, I mean, that's something that's like a continual frustration, especially with this story. Uh, I mean, we were talking right before recording, but it's like, you know, the, the only stories you've seen in the media about the, what's happening to the prison populations is that, you know, when, when good governors are, you know, making good choices and releasing people, even though that's not exactly what's happening. And, the media is not covering what's going on in prison populations, just like as we've talked about on the show before, it's not covering what's going on in nursing homes across the country mm-hmm. where mass outbreaks are happening. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that these two populations don't get covered. I mean, these are literally the elderly and, and you know, prison populations. I mean, these are people that... We literally like square them away out of society, out of sight, out of mind. They we put them on literal islands to live alone, isolated. So it's not a coincidence that the media isn't covering this, but it's horrifying because there basically is no media pressure. There's no media pressure on the state or on the local jurisdictions to do anything about this, right? And that's like, you know, aside from uh, you know, with the suits that you guys are, are filing and the kind of petitioning that you can do, there's not a lot of recourse out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, this kind of gets at the whole reason I do the work that I do. Right. And what I see is like the purpose of my life ultimately Mm -hmm. is that what I really see is that we're all very connected and that we actually can't put people away in cages or a nursing home and expect that we're not impacted by them. I don't think that that's real. And I can say, and I think that COVID is really um, showing us that in a way by, by the outbreaks happening in those spaces and then creeping out into the community. I, but I right. think that that happens with human, like our, how we feel about humanity all of the time. Right. I think that there's mm-hmm. a sub in a subconscious way, we are constantly aware of the fact that we can be, our society tells us we can be thrown away if we somehow become undesirable, if that's because we've committed a crime or because we've gotten old or we become disabled, right? Like we are all aware of that. And I think we all carry it all the time. Even if we don't think about it, um, we live with that. We know if you go and make a mistake, you could be locked in a cage for the rest of your life. And I think that we can't escape that truth. And I think because the system has become so huge it, and it's toxic for everybody it touches, that it extends really deep into our society too. Because it doesn't only impact the people who are incarcerated there, but it also impacts their loved ones 
which is vast, and everybody mm-hmm. who works there, right? Correctional officers have very high rates of like uh, alcoholism, mm-hmm. suicide. They have very low life expectancies. Um, so it's just evidence of a toxic, toxic system that you is impacting all of us, whether or not we think it is directly or not. And I think that, you know, very, very true of the nursing home space too, right? Like yeah. we all know, like if I, if I get old, if I don't have enough money to make sure I'm cared for, mm-hmm. like my family might just send me away to this horrible place where they just want to try to forget about me. And there's not a lot of supervision there either. Yeah. Yeah. Because we've decided we don't care about those people. Yeah, I mean that's that's always sort of been the case with me. And I was I, I had a lot of friends who gotten I mean I got in a lot of trouble when I was younger, but I had some friends who got in like some pretty serious trouble when I was younger. Um like a friend of mine robbed a bank on mission, like in probably the worst bank heist in human fucking history. Uh <laughs> and his getaway driver uh left early and so he he went to a bus stop and sat there and got arrested and he didn't go to prison like for i mean he was about 15 years old went to juvenile hall for a while but like just getting that like paper on him then Mm -hmm. like you know like this this having that like beginning of that record i mean that set the course of the rest of his life you know he became a i mean a lot of guys i knew became junkies but like that guy really became a junkie uh and like 15 your brain is you up yeah. And you're like, literally like your brain isn't even connected, right? Like you're, you actually are like not a sane person when you're 15 years old. Yeah. And should we really be dictating people's entire futures based on one stupid decision they made when they were a child? Like, I think, no, <laughs> I don't think yeah, that, exactly. that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can't, yeah. I mean, you can't buy cigs anymore until you're 21. It's insane, Um, which is really what my advocacy is about. They have to lower the age of smoking (laughs) back to 18. Um, But yeah, it's, 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 it's really insane because it's like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure many people or some people at least listening to this have gotten in some trouble before in their life. But like, it's really one of the most dehumanizing things that I think that like you can really go to without going to extraordinary measures to find it. Um, I, I mean, in, in San Francisco too, like you mentioned that they weren't, um, they weren't transferring people from the jails to the prisons. I mean, the jail in San Francisco and the other one it's in San Bruno, right? Um, it's, uh, they're not great places. You know, there was a, uh, there was a prisoner fighting ring, uh, set up by the sheriff's office there a while ago. It's really like gross in there. Um, it's like a lot of, a lot of mold. It's like. Not the kind of place I would literally rather be in prison than in, in the jail in San Francisco. Not time length wise, but you know, just comfort wise. Uh, and and it's like it's 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 incredible. I mean, there's been a movement to close it. I think they are closing. Yeah, we're closing it. Eight fifty, right? Close, uh, closed for business. Which is cool because that place. Fu- I'll tell you this: that place fucking sucks ass. I they very suck. much dislike that. Can place. I tell you a secret? Are you ready? Absolutely. We don't need prisons or jails or immigrant <laughs> detention facilities or juvenile halls at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, <laughs> I, I'll tell you this. It did, certainly did not help me become a better person to be in there. Yeah. And that's what I just want to say, like, because I, I don't imagine that all of your listeners are abolitionists necessarily. And so when we say that term, though, what people think is we're saying no accountability for people who cause harm and like you know, go open up all, throw open all the doors and just let people go free and don't worry about it, which like maybe some people think that, but that's not what I think. But what, what I do think is I do, I do not believe we solve any problems by treating people inhumanely. I don't think putting people in cages is helpful, even if they did something really awful. That person still has other people who has to take care of them. And I think we should ensure that everybody is like at least in a room and has what they need and isn't being tortured because that's what putting people in cages is, is it's torture. And we don't have to hurt people just because they hurt somebody else. That's some like childish ass like shit. And we can, we can dream bigger and do so much better. Like prisons and jails and cages for people who have caused harm is one possible solution, right? One uh-huh. possible reaction. And then there's infinite other ones. And I just challenge us to think about 
what some of those other ones might be and if they might work better because it doesn't seem to me that what we're doing right now is really working all that great. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly doesn't help with like if your problem is recidivism, it's not really a good uh, good solution for that, right? No, people don't get better in cages, and most people who go to prison will get out someday, right? And especially true in jails. I mean, everybody who's in a jail is going to get out someday. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think people sometimes don't understand the distinction. Jail, you go for like a year, year and a half. Prison, you go for like longer than that, right? Yeah. That's basically. I that's, can't remember the exact times, but yeah, yeah, something like that. there aren't exact times. That's good. That's a good definition. Yeah, I mean, I would suggest like the system is working in the sense that it's working for in in a way that's it's not intended to actually help people get right. like yeah, or it's not intend it's not intended to do anything other than square away populations, like you've said, of undesirables. And in- right. and and increasingly uh, higher percentages of populations, right? Yeah, and we haven't talked about race at all in this conversation, yeah, yeah. but right. clearly it was created as a solution for racist people wanting to lock away particularly black people in cages, right? Like the 13th Amendment was like, okay, I know. We can we can free them except if we tell if we say they caused if they committed a crime, then they can be not free. Um, yeah. And then yeah. Well, especially, like, I mean, if you look at like some of the, some of the prison they have in the South, the chain gang stuff. Yeah. I mean, it is in the, you know, the vast majority of people in prisons are people of color and, or poor people. Well, yeah, I would say, yeah, it's been a huge expansion and a great tool of the state for locking up and dealing with p- poverty, basically. Yeah. In yeah. the way that it's not dealing with poverty. <laughs> Right. Well, something something I wanted to get to too, because we're, we're we're almost at the end here. But I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this as well. I remember there was like some there was some let's say controversy uh, about letting prisoners out a while ago because uh, the state uh, would be less able to fight our giant fucking wildfires that we have <laughs> every year. Which even though even though I have to sleep with the window open or I have nightmares, I can't sleep with the window open because I wake up with a sniffly nose and a cough. Uh, anyways, so there, there, there was, uh, there's, there's, there, there, uh, I think a lot of people know this at this point because it's, you know, it's, it's kind of gone around a lot, but I mean, Sam, California rather uses a lot of prisoners to fight our insane wildfires every year now. And so like, are they, uh, they're still doing that, right? Like even with the coronavirus outbreak, they're still sending people out there. Yeah. I mean, there's all these, there was all these stories that were like, they said two different things. They were like, there's a shortage. That was definitely true. They were like, there's a shortage. And they were like, there's a shortage because of coronavirus and they're all sick and they can't fight the fires. Or it was like, there's a shortage because we let all of them go. And mm-hmm. now we don't have them to fight the fires. And like, like the, both of them are rooted in the same problem, which is yeah. we are relying on literal slave labor to respond to a crisis in our state that only gets worse all the time. And we've clearly mm-hmm. not tried to Think about how to solve, you know, what's the solution to that otherwise. And let me tell you what the solution is. <laughs> it's letting people <laughs> out of prison. That's like, that's like always my solution. Here's the solution. You're like, I stub my toe. I'm like, let people out of prison. <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah, they could employ them. We spend $13 billion a year on, like, that's the budget for the California Department of Corrections. That's not even all the jails and immigrant, yeah. immigrant detention facilities, right? Like, that's just the prison system. And if we let out, I did some math on this recently, but I can't tell you off the top of my head. Also, I've had mm. a glass of wine, so especially not now. But absolutely, if we let out, you know, it costs eighty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate a person, right? So if you let out ten thousand people, there's what is that? Eight hundred thousand dollars? Eight hundred? Do not 000? fucking ask me this. Eight hundred thousand dollars <laughs> that you can shift over into hiring firefighters. If you let out twenty thousand then it's even more, right? Like, so there is a direct correlation between our supposed, like, lack of resources, not to, you know, not to mention all the other rich people who I know nothing about because I'm so, such a poor person that I'm like, how does that, how do, I drive places, I'm like, in San Francisco, I'm like, what? Like, who has money like that? I just well, I don't get it. One sec, though. What, what, I don't get, I took a fucking walk around North Beach and Russian Hill the other night, and I was like, wait a minute. Literally, I just realized like most neighborhoods in San Francisco, not most, but like every neighborhood on this side of San Francisco is like, you got to be like a billionaire or a millionaire to live here. I'm like, how are there that many? I don't know. I don't know any of them. 
I know. Like, yeah, one. well, it's, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's like, I, I, and I think, I think one of the things that like is so kind of galling about the firefighter, um, the prisoner firefighter stuff is that once those people can't get out, literally all of them are, once they get out, they're all banned from being firefighters. They can't become firefighters, right? Basically, yeah. I, there's like licensing that people have to get to become firefighters. And if people have criminal convictions, they often aren't able to get that licensing. I also, I know less on the like labor and totally. the union side of things, but I have also heard that the firefighters unions have not been very amenable to the idea of people with felony convictions becoming firefighters after they're released from prison. Um, so I think that those are, you know, a couple of barriers. So you know, but yeah, I mean, we shouldn't be relying on unreliable slave labor, unreliable in the sense that I'm trying to end it all. So it's not reliable because they're not going to be there anymore yeah. uh, to respond to these huge environmental problems that we just like, we know they're going to happen every year now. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm like in Santa Rosa right now, my parents' house, like literally our back fence burned down a couple years ago and there were a bunch of incarcerated people up here fighting the fires. And oh, yeah, I forgot about, yeah, Santa Rosa almost burned down. Yeah. Yeah. And so we like, we need people to fight fires. Yes. Should they be incarcerated people who barely get paid? No. I mean, we should give incarcerated people as long as they're, stuck there in horrible situations the ability to like learn skills but yeah like to to like do that to have them fight fires and then like not offer them a pathway to a career when they come home is like so fucked up it's just so fucked up and the attorney general's office in the past mind you under (laughs) miss harris Mm -hmm. actually fought against letting people out of prison because they were like we can't afford that because we rely on them for too many things and we don't have to pay them. And so like literally if we don't have slave labor, we can't continue to run the state of California. I mean, that's a, yeah, that, that, yeah. I mean, I don't even know what to say to that, man. Like that should it's be disgusting. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. disgusting. Good night. <laughs> Sweet dreams. Well, what are the, so what are the next steps? What can, how can people, uh, you know, even one find more information about what what is going on with prison populations but also like what are the next steps for uh you and your office and how can people get involved oh good sources of information let me take this let me think about that one but i think one of the things that would be helpful right now is i mean as you were mentioning there's not a lot of attention on the issue right and we Mm -hmm. do need more people to be encouraging Governor Newsom to release people from prison. I'm promising you all, there's a lot of people in prison who deserve to come home, who are safe to come home, and people don't need to be afraid of them. And so if you are with that idea, then I encourage you to you could go to Governor Newsom's website and you can leave him a little comment, directly in a little <laughs> comment box that says, like, let them all go. He'll know exactly what that means. Um, or just, you know, any, any comment about like, Hey, I really believe we need to reduce the prison population. Mm -hmm. I really encourage you to let more people out, um, or tweet at him or write your legislator, your local, your legislator, your state legislator, and encourage them to support those policies as well. Does mine, does, does old Mr. Wiener? Mr. Wiener does. Yes. Oh, well, that's he Still cannot believe he never dead. changed his name for office. I, I respect. Uh, I have some funny information. I'll <laughs> we, we can talk about that after. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, Danica. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're going to link to some some pieces, uh, including the piece that Danica wrote about her husband in the show notes, or alongside her husband. I think they both co-wrote it. Um, and some, you know, where you can get more information about what's going on in San Quentin and other prisons across the country, because it's not great in other places as well. Yeah, uh, I would recommend, uh, you know, against my usual uh, recommendations, uh, not to use that word twice in a sentence, do not go to prison right now. Looks awful. On that note, uh, my name is Brace.
I'm Liz. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky. Hold on, hold on. How come you're doing this now? I don't know. How Sometimes come we, we, we feel it out and we switch it up, baby. We don't We've feel already it. done you this ending bit where you got mad at me. I'm for just saying, saying but now you just do it now. It's, no, I got it's mad only at you. Been, look, maybe we're in a rhythm because we've recorded four episodes this week. A rhythm would imply some sort of order to it. What it actually is is bullying. No, I, look, maybe you haven't synced up to my rhythm. Maybe you're not in rhythm and I'm in rhythm. I have to sync to you now? Yeah, maybe I'm in the driver's seat here. I'm lead, well, baby. I'm leading. All right, I'm Googling. Where's the moon? Our- Anyways, uh, yes. We, you know I, what? This is we are joined by we are, we are joined by producer Young Chomsky. We are joined by pr- my friend, producer Young Chomsky. <laughs> and this is True and On. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein.